Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. A quick note before the show begins. The audio from these podcasts mostly come from live video YouTube streams on my channel. They may vary in quality from show to show and reference visual content not described to you, the listener. I'm sorry about that. If you prefer video to go with this audio, head over to youtube.com backslash from us, F-R-U-M-E-S-S for the whole enchilada. Who doesn't like a whole enchilada anyway? Hey, what's going on? How are you guys? It's another Monday, which means it's time to read another two chapters of the novelization of Return of the Living Dead, the novelization of the major motion picture uh, written by John Russo. Now, up to this point, the chapters we've been reading have been pretty short, but we just, wow, this one's going to be a little bit longer than usual. I'm not going to lie. I was a little like, oh, I'm just going to jump into this. It's going to be real, real fast, real, real easy. And no, not the case. But um, where where did we last? What did we last leave off? Where did we last leave off? Um, we we had uh, we had Bert and Frank and Freddie, you know, driving the uh, the the pickaxe into the cadaver's skull and seeing that it's not working, it's not dying. They're going to need to figure out a way to dispose of the body. And they figure, you know, there is a crematorium across the street in the resurrection funeral home. It's run by my old friend Ernie. Let's go. Let's let's uh let's let's knock on the door and see if he's working late tonight. And unfortunate, fortunately at the time, but unfortunate for all parties, he was indeed. Chapter 10. Ernie Kaltenbrunner. Age 36, a wiry, sandy-haired man with a bony face and wide, thick lips, had been having a busy evening even before he got a phone call from Bert Wilson. Mind you, he's only 36, which is actually my age. Wow, I'm as old as Ernie. But, you know, Ernie's supposed to be a Nazi in hiding in the film. So he's way, 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 way younger. I mean, he would be in his... 60s he should be in his 60s in uh in the movie something like that in order to be what he was 50s 60s um but yeah he he was having a busy evening even before he got the call from Bert Wilson he had to get a banker and his wife both embalmed patched up and laid out for Thursday morning 4th of July was tomorrow Wednesday if Ernie expected to have any part of the holiday free for himself, he'd have to stay at the mortuary till the wee hours tonight, working on the two corpses. Now, Bert Wilson was coming over here in some kind of trouble that was going to eat up even more of Ernie's precious time. He tried to get done as much as possible before Bert showed up. It wasn't a piece of cake. The banker and his wife, Morton and Helen Dowden, had both been killed in a terrible car crash. Ernie had their nude, mangled bodies before him side by side with a work aisle in between on two separate embalming tables. 
Morton Downey's body was in two pieces. In the twisting, shattering impact made made upon his Cadillac by a grocery van that had lost its brakes on a high-speed highway, his torso had been completely severed by the jagged windscreen and uh, that had been transformed into a gigantic rip saw, tearing him apart diagonally beneath the rib cage. That might be some of John Russo's best writing. Some of it uh, in this in this book. This is where John Russo really really shines. And this is obviously not in the film. We get this whole backstory, this this little addition of 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 these people. Surprisingly, there were only a few cuts and scratches on his face, arms, and legs. Helen Dowden was a different story. Both of her hands had been cut off. Her nose was missing. In its place was a blood caked hole. Judging from the rouge and the lipstick that she still wore, her face had received a lot of cosmetic attention in life as a woman were as women were wont to do. What? That doesn't make sense. And it was going to require even more in death. <clears throat> the Dowden's Grief-stricken, beautiful, 20-year-old daughter had insisted that she didn't want a closed casket funeral. She would pay whatever it cost to make mom and pop look good. She had given Ernie Coltenbrenner eight by ten portraits to work from. He could see that they had been a handsome couple and could take professional pride in restoring their attractiveness under such challenging circumstances. He could picture them graciously mingling at the country club affair they had been driving to, both with thick white hair, expensively barbered and coiffed, coiffed, like that word, coiffed, coiffed, both with blandly amiable smiles on their ruddy faces and both with fashionable, well-tailored clothes on their slightly overweight bodies. He decided that he would try and make them appear as though they had arrived at the country club suited and gowned and had taken a notion to lie down for a moment in the presence of other guests. The first thing that Ernie did was to scoop out Morton Dowden's internal organs and pack them in a seal in sealable plastic bags laced with disinfectant. Then he packed cotton batting. Then he packed cotton batting into the abdominal and chest cavities to prevent seepage of fluids as much as possible. When this was done, he wired and stapled the corpse's torso back together, looping the wires between the legs around the groin and stapling them to rib bones. Then he sewed the flesh together using a fine but strong thread of monofilament and making neat, close, close, stitches to further ensure against leakage. Finally, he slipped a wide elastic corset padded inside like a piece of large sticking plaster up over the hip and around the torso, protecting and reinforcing the repair job. You're good as new, Morton, Ernie told his patient. He turned his attention on stapling and stitching, her severed hands so that they were firmly reattached. There, Helen, don't worry about this not looking absolutely neat, he consoled her. You'll be wearing a lovely pair of elbow length evening gloves. And so long as you don't tell and so long as you and I don't tell anyone, they'll never guess your secret. Ooh, 
This is macabre. Embalming Helen Dowden wasn't any special problem. He inserted the injection needle into the uh, carotoid artery and the drainage needle in the jugular vein and got the pump going, replacing blood with embalming fluid. The circulatory system was a closed circuit, enabling the machinery to do its job without any disruptions, except for the vessels severed at the wrists, where incisions had to be watched for leakage, and the hands, which had to be separately injected with embalming solution. The difficulty with Morton Dowden was, of course, that his circulatory system had been aborted, ripped in half with the rest of his body. It meant that Ernie had to embalm all of the body parts separately. However, because of the severity of the wound, these are in quotation marks, the severity and wound, virtually all of the blood had been drained. So it was a matter of making sure enough embalming fluid got to the tissues. Ernie had barely completed the embalming of the husband and wife when the night bell rang. He opened a drawer in his Martitian supply cabinet and pulled out a large black Luger that he kept for personal protection. And then he went out the side door of the embalming room, looking through the peephole and saw Bert Wilson standing outside in the floppy golfer's hat that he usually wore to their Saturday night poker sessions. Now, I think what is lost on our friend John Russo is that the, the the subversive idea that Ernie is supposed to be a Nazi carrying that Luger. And instead, he's now like a 36 year old. I mean, it's just again, I think it totally goes over John Russo's head. Bert jumped back when Ernie opened the door. Christ's sake, you're going to shoot me or something. Ernie glanced down or Christ's sake, you're going to shoot me or something. Ernie glanced down at the Luger, but forgot to point point pointed aside. Got to have this for self-protection against the creepos who hang out around this neighborhood at night. Sometimes I hear funny noises in the cemetery across the way. People carrying on, playing loud music. You'd think that they would have some respect for the dead. Um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we had some tombstones overturned, graves desecrated. Tonight, I thought I heard some weird sounds and saw some sparklers or something. But if I called the cops who's ever whipping it up over there would be bug out as soon as they heard the sirens. And if I took the time to check it out, I'd probably shoot somebody crazy kids could be scoring dope over there for all I know. While Ernie was yakking, Bert gingerly nudged the muzzle of the Luger away from his belly. And Ernie took the hint and put the gun back in its drawer. You look green around the girl, the, the girls, you look green around the gills. Ernie said, do you want some hot coffee to perk you up? No, no, no coffee for me, Bert said, turning a bit greener when he followed Ernie into the area where the patched up bodies of Morton and Helen Dowden reposted, reposed on the embalming tables. Well, I'm going to have some, said Ernie. He went to the Mr. Coffee machine and poured himself a steaming cup. Sipping it, he stared at the place where Helen Dowden's nose ought to have been like an artist con- contemplating his next brushstroke. Got to make her a new one, he said. She won't be able to use it for breathing, but I don't think she'll mind as long as she looks good. He took another sip of coffee and he gave Bert a sharp, probing look. Sorry to have to tell you, you hit me on a busy night, Bert. You mentioned an urgent problem on the phone? Bert cleared his throat. <clears> throat> Listen, if I had to, if I asked you to keep a secret, 
a very important secret. Could you? Sure. What is it? Ernie, I need your help in a big way. You know you can depend on me. You know that. What's wrong? Uh, I've got a couple of my men outside. Mind if I bring them in? Sure. What's the big deal, Bert? They're going to bring in something with them. I have to warn you, Ernie, old pal, old poker buddy. What they're going to bring here is pretty horrible. Bert, level with me, said Ernie, suddenly much more worried about what he was letting himself in for. Did you kill somebody? In a way, I wish I did, said Bert, smiling a mirthlessly enigmatic, like, you know, um, like a question mark of a smile. Enigmatic. Try saying that word. I wish to God I had killed some. I wish to God I had killed what I tried to kill. Now, we just talked about how um, great some of this setup for Helen and Morton Dowden was. And it's great because it like puts like it like draws characterization to what otherwise would be two corpses, which is awesome. It's good. But then like we lose all of the nuance in the film in this exchange, because in the movie, you can see that that Ernie is like stressed. He's like Bert says, I got to let my guys in. I think I forget what the lines are. And Ernie doesn't want it. He doesn't want a, a big he doesn't want people coming in. And here it, all that nuance is lost in in the, that we see in the film. And that's what you get from performances from really talented actors. And, and in this way, it comes off wooden. In any case, this last bit, though, is really is really freaky. Did you kill somebody in a way? I wish I did, said Bert, smiling a mirthlessly. Ign- 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 I'm going to say it. Uh, I wish I had killed what I tried to kill. Uh, it looks like I, I was I skipped a chapter, so uh, it's not as long of a reading as I thought. It's we're, we're on chapter 11. Tina Vitali couldn't believe it. Legs was actually letting that ignorant slob suicide put his his thing into her. When while she was dancing naked on the tombstone, he had taken his shirt and pants off and had stood in front of Legs with a big erection, wearing nothing but a studded dog collar. Then she had leapt onto him, wrapping her great legs around his scrawny, pimpled butt. Now they were going at it like mad, right on top of the grave. Meat and Casey had wandered off somewhere, probably doing it on top of some other grave. And Chuck and Scuzz were leaning against the tombstone, toking a joint and watching suicide and legs doing it in the sputtering glare of the road flare that was half burnt out. Tina felt all the way burnt out. She couldn't watch this scene any longer or she would freak out. She'd go totally bananas and have to be locked away somewhere in some funny farm. Suddenly, she didn't like her friends and knew that she didn't want to be like them. She had a clear vision of what she would become if she didn't break away, and it wasn't a pretty picture. Only half realizing what she was doing, she found herself slowly stepping backwards, backing away, melting soundlessly into the darkness. Then she turned and walked faster. Lightning flash and thunder boomed. She hurried her pace towards the stone arc of Resurrection Cemetery. When she passed under the arc and back out onto the sidewalk, it was like she was leaving her past behind her, except for Freddie Travis. He was the only one she needed to take with her into a brighter, saner future. She heard a door slam, and when she looked down the block at the side lot of Colton Burner's funeral home, to her great amazement, she thought she saw Freddy. 
It was Freddie. He had just slammed shut the back doors of a white van with Unita Medical Supply written on it in big red letters. But what would he be doing at a funeral home? Freddie, Tina cried. Freddie. He turned, surprised at the sound of her voice and the clicking of her high heels as she hurried towards him. He recognized her for sure as she passed under the street lamp. They fell into each other's arms and kissed beside the van in the glare of the yellow bug light over the side door of the embalming room. Freddie, she, mum she murmured. Oh, Freddie, I'm so glad to see you, but what are you doing here? Uh, I, uh, special, special delivery, he stammered. At a funeral home? I wouldn't have thought that any, I wouldn't have thought that anybody in there would be beyond the help of any sort of medical supply. I would, I would have thought that anybody in there would be beyond the help of any sort of medical supply. You don't understand. It's, will you be getting off work soon? It's well past eight o'clock. I can't wait for us to be together. There's so many things I want to tell you about. I mean, it all came together for me today. This is going to be a brand new start for us. I can just feel it. Uh, about that. Yikes. She hugged Freddy again and planted a big smacker. Just then, <laughs> lightning and thunder erupted in a tremendous flash and roar, and Frank Nello came out of the embalming room. Feeling like a peeping Tom, he stood by watching Freddie and Tina kiss, a long, drawn-out one with their eyes closed. When they finally came up for air, he said, I take it this is your girlfriend, kid. Uh, yeah, Freddie stammered. Tina Vitali, meet my boss, Frank Nello. I, I know I'm not doing all the voices that I was doing before. I just suck at that. Pleased to meet you, said Tina. Freddie and I have a date tonight when he gets off. Do you mind if I wait for him in the van, Mr. Nello? Better not do that, Frank said nervously. It's going to rain is all she meant, Freddie said, pleading. That's okay. Forget I asked, said Tina, wondering what why Freddie was acting so strangely. The embalming room door banged open and Bert Wilson leaned out, glowering. Frank, Freddie, come on. Damn it. The stuff you lugged in is squirming all over the floor here. We got no time to piss around in the parking lot. Er, uh, sorry, but my girlfriend just showed up, Freddie apologized. We'll get rid of her till later. Uh, boss, Frank Nello said to Bert, we can't let her stay out here. There's going to be a downpour, and I don't believe we want her inside either. Why don't I give her my key so she can wait for Freddie back at the warehouse? We got everything cleaned up back there. She can't get into any trouble, and she'll be out of our hair till we get to do what needs to be done. Can she be trusted? Bert demanded, glowering at Freddie. Sure, boss, Freddie said. And what's interesting here is this little like exchange is not in the film. This is written. And while I love to have any piece like, you know, any other, I mean, it's cool to hear it. But, you know, if you're if you're, you know, trimming a movie for like running time, this doesn't need to be in there. What they do in the movie is perfect. It's a cinematic. You know, she goes looking for Freddie. She goes to the base, she finds the star man. Um, we are approaching one of the absolute most terrifying scenes in the book for me. Something truly terrifying um, that I've been talking about a long time. And finally, I think we've got we've gotten here. We've gotten here. Uh, <laughs> give her the damn keys then, Bert said wearily. And get in here. I need you two guys for moral support. He went back in, slamming the door. Here, Tina, 
Frank said, handing her his key ring. It's the big one here, the front door. Pull it shut and lock it after you go in, then wait for us in the office. Oh, thank you, said Tina. No problem, said Frank. Me and Freddy are buddies. We've been through a lot in just two days, right, kid? He winked and went into the embalming room, leaving Freddy alone with Tina. She said, that's weird you started. She said, comma, Freddy, tell me the truth. Is something goofy going on? Are you in trouble? No, he lied. Why? The guy in the Bermuda shorts, bleh, the guy in the Bermuda shorts mentioned something squirming on the floor in there. I can't imagine what he meant, but it gave me the creeps. Believe me, Tina, it's better if I don't tell you what he meant. So please don't ask, okay? Just go to the warehouse and wait for me. Everything's going to be okay. I promise. He took off his red baseball cap and handed it to her. Wear this in case you get caught in the rain. I really got to go now. The sooner I get this over with, the sooner I can be with you. He backed away from her and put her put his hand on the doorknob. Bye, Freddy. I'll be waiting for you. So please hurry. I wonder if John Russo kind of like ships Tina and Freddy. You know what I mean by ships like relationships like he, you know, like that that thing that they that all the kids are saying these days. Um, Bye, honey, he said and went into the embalming room and closed the door behind him. Tina stared down for at the Tina stared at the door for a moment and then decided to just walk to the warehouse as fast as she could to try and beat the rain. She put the red cap down over her long black hair, thinking what a touching gesture it had been for Freddie to give it to her at a loss to picture exactly what kind of squirmy things on the floor he had to deal with before he could get off work. She found herself silently saying a Hail Mary for him as she walked. It was the second time she had prayed in many months. The first time had been for sunshine. Even though she had rebelled against the dogma of her Catholic upbringing, the need to pray occasionally overwhelmed her in times of trial. But because she remained a doubter, she didn't really know if giving in to prayer at these times was a strength or a weakness. In this rundown section of Louisville, the nighttime streets were totally deserted. To Tina, it was creepy, and the impending rain made it even creepier. Sometimes, as she walked, she could smell steaming garbage and stale urine coming from the alleys. While in the distance, she heard faint, tantalizing sounds of livelier, prettier sections of the city. Every once in a while, the pools of light cast by widely spaced. Every once in a while, the pools of light cast by widely spaced street lamps were augmented by horrendous flashes of lightning that for a few shuddering seconds made everything as bright as daylight. Approaching the warehouse, Tina saw lights burning in a couple of grimy windows the huge black barge of a building looking forbidding inside instead of the huge black barge of a building looking forbidding instead of comforting. She considered just sitting on the concrete steps out front and not going inside unless the rain started to come down. She felt spooky and suddenly cold. Don't be silly. There's nothing to be afraid of in there. She muttered to herself and put Frank Nello's key in the steel door with a deadbolt lock. She hesitated and turned the key. No sooner had she pushed the door open than she heard a hoarse, desperate 
voice coming from somewhere deep inside the warehouse. Help me, please, help, <coughs> please, help me. Again, terrifying. Ter- this is terrifying. No sooner had she pushed the door open than she heard a hoarse, desperate voice coming from somewhere deep inside the warehouse. Hoarse and desperate. Help, please help me. Tina jumped back. She almost slammed the door and ran, but the voice sounded so piteous, so desperate. She'd never forgive herself for abandoning someone who needed her help. It could have been one of Freddie's fellow workers who had some kind of accident when nobody was around. The voice cried out again. Help. Please. Help. It was getting weaker and hoarser and more desperate. Responding to its urgency, Tina stepped quickly into the warehouse and shut the steel door, but forgot to turn the knob that must be turned to secure the deadbolt from inside. Where are you? She called out. I'm here. Where are you? She moved through the dark shadows, past the office door, into the bay with its tiers of shelving and stacks of crated medical supplies. Down here, the weak voice croaked. Tina found her way to the cellar door. Oh, my God. Then she heard the voice once again pleading for help. She opened the door and saw nothing but blackness. Sorry, she groped for the light switch and found it, and the naked light bulb came on, illuminating the deep, treacherous, treacherous, stairwell hurry i'm down here the pitiful voice whispered tina peered into the cellar craning her neck repulsed by the smell of dampness and dankness but unable to ignore the sufferer who must be down there she held her breath and started down the stairs this to me is the single most terrifying part of the whole book. Why on earth they did not shoot this and film this in the movie? I think if they had, it would elevate this film somehow even more than it already is and make it absolute. I mean, this is terrifying. This is this passage might even be more terrifying than when I was 10 years old watching this movie for the first time, scared out of my wits. That's how terrifying that passage is to me. Meanwhile, Freddie Travis was listening to an argument between Burt Wilson and Ernie Coltenbrenner. Freddie and Frank had carried several big, heavy-duty brown plastic garbage bags from the van and had deposited the, the writhing, squirming bags in the middle of the embalming room floor. Ernie had taken one look at them, and he refused to cremate them. There's something alive in those bags, he had told Bert. His green eyes flashed angrily. 
you've got nerve. You've got a nerve, friendship or not. I am not about to just burn something alive without knowing what it is or even with knowing what it is for that matter. Ernie, I can't tell you what it is, Bert had wailed. I'm asking you to trust me. What's in these bags definitely needs burning. But Ernie had refused to trust Bert that much and had reached and they had reached an impasse in the lull. Ernie had gone about his business, making a new nose for Helen Dowden. That was remarkably like the original one. The new one was made of dermawax, molded and blended in into her face. It looked good enough to breathe out of. Freddie was both fascinated and repulsed by the mortician's clever work every time he stole a glance at it. The brown plastic bags had continued to squirm on the floor, and Freddie kept a nervous watch to make sure none of them edged closer to him. He was stationed alongside Frank Nello, midway between the bags and the embalming tables. After sculpting the new nose, Ernie Coltenbrenner, why does he keep calling him Ernie Coltenbrenner? Why does he just say Ernie? Uh, took hold of one of Helen Dowden's arms and started bending it. It appeared to be stiff, and it was with an effort that he massaged and bent it a little at a time. Bert Wilson, who had fallen silent in his effort to think up a fresh approach to talking Ernie into cremating the contents of the plastic bags, spoke for the first time in several minutes. Ernie, what the hell are you doing? Breaking out the rigor mortis. Oh, yeah? Rigor mortis uh, starts in the brain, Ernie explained. Then it moves to the internal organs and finally settles in the muscles. See, he pinched Helen on her bicep. It wears off after a while, but you can see it wears off after a while, but you can break it out manually by flexing the muscles. I have to do this if I want to get her and her husband in shape for laying them out in natural poses. I see, said Bert. He cleared his throat. Ernie, you got to burn these bags for me, please. I'm asking you as a pal and a poker buddy. Not without knowing what's inside, Ernie insisted, continuing to flex and massage Helen Dowden's body. I like this, too, this sort of back and forth. There's no time for this in the movie, although I kind of wish they had. I mean, a little bit of back and forth push and pull uh, before we finally get to see what's inside would have uh, elevated it even further. John Russo has some good ideas. He does. He does. Far and few between. But when he does, he does. Okay, okay. Bert said, approaching Ernie and putting his hand on his shoulder. I'll tell you what's in the bag so you'll understand why we can't risk opening them. Rabid weasels. That's what's in there. Honest. What? Said Ernie. What are you doing with a bunch of rabid weasels? He stopped flexing Helen Dowden's naked right leg and stepped over a pile of squirming bags gazing down on them Bert gingerly stepped behind Ernie sticking close to him I'm trying to explain to you Ernie they came in as part of a shipment they weren't supposed to be rabid but you know how these things happen Frank and Freddie were looking on almost disinterested in the discussion except for their desire to get the grisly business done and get out of there I'm still sick as hell and my head hurts, Freddie whispered to Frank. Do you feel the same way? Frank nodded glumly. Rabid weasels, Ernie Colton Burner mumbled disbelievingly and bent to untie one of the brown plastic bags. Watch it, Ernie. You don't want to get bit, Bert hastily cautioned him. Ernie scooped up. Ernie stood up, blinking his eyes questioningly at Bert and said, frankly, I do not think I believe you. 
poker buddy or not, Bert shouted, I'm telling you, there's rabid weasels in those bags and we have to destroy them. It's our friggin' civic duty for Christ's sake. Unperturbed, Ernie suggested, why don't you call the animal shelter? If this story got out, it might hurt my business. You know, rabies and everything. I think you're overreacting, said Ernie. So what? You don't run a pet store, so some lab animals got rabies. Take them to the pound, that's all. Well, we can't, Ernie. You, you got to take my word for it. Be, be a friend, for Christ's sake. I, I wouldn't involve you in this if I didn't need to. If I had any other way out, I'd... If they are rabid weasels, you can't just burn them alive, said Ernie. It's too awful. At least let me kill them first. He went to the drawer and... He went to the drawer in the supply cabinet and took out his Luger. Just have your two men here carry them out to the parking lot, and I'll put, I'll put them out of their misery. See, in the in the in the movie, Freddie's, sorry, uh, Ernie's eagerness to to euthanize the rabid weasels is, you know, in you know, indicative of the fact that he used to be a Nazi, as well as the use of the the, the crematorium. You know, uh, it's so genius. It's so well done. In uh, Daniel Bannon, it was a goddamn genius. He really was. Bert looked nervously at Frank and Freddie and then back at Ernie. I don't think that would work, he shrugged. What do you mean? Why not? Ernie, can you swear to keep a secret? I don't know. Depends on what kind of secret. You have to swear or I can't tell you. But I promise I won't make you part of anything illegal. All right, said Ernie grudgingly. I promise. Bert took a deep breath. Well, old pal, old poker buddy, old pal, it's not rabid weasels in the bags, he confessed. Ernie stared at the struggling bags, taking a tighter grip on his Luger. Bert went over to one of the bags and tugged loose on the cord that held it shut. He pulled the plastic apart a little and revealed a hand clenching and unclenching holy shit ernie said jumping back sorry but this is the only way you're gonna believe me when i tell you the truth bert said and he picked up the bag and emptied its contents onto the floor in front of ernie a human arm sawed off at the shoulder fell to the floor and started writhing the hand separately severed was still clenching and unclenching then the hand twitched and leapt and managed to grab Ernie's ankle. He let out a strangled scream. I love that. That's a great adjective for scream. He let out a strangled scream and tried to kick the thing off. Freddie and Frank watched, too sick to move. But Bert quickly knelt and put the severed hand away, pulled the severed hand away from Ernie's leg, tearing his sock in the process. Yick! said Ernie. Bert tossed the hand and the arm back in the bag and tied the cord. Ernie was white and shaking, leaning back against one of the embalming tables. Better sit down, old pal, Bert said. I got quite a story to tell you. Meanwhile, Tina had come down the steps in the warehouse basement. The third step had almost made her fall. It was an old plank, you know, and totally an old bitch. Third step is always a bitch partially splintered and wobbly. It had creaked and shifted under her high-heeled shoes, and she had barely managed to keep her balance. Then, more cautiously, she had descended the rest of the steps. 
At the bottom, she peered into near darkness, wondering why she was hearing nothing more from the croaky, injured-sounding voice. She found another light switch and flipped it on, amazed at the filth and the clutter all around her. Suddenly, something moved in the shadows behind some rusty drums. I am, like, shivering right now. Tina stiffened. Hello? She called out tremendously. Are you there? I'm here to help you. Something started to shuffle out of the shadows. Tina squinted, trying to make it out, and then she gasped. A huge intake of air that filled her entire chest cavity, and her eyes got as huge and round as saucers. Rooted by fright, she found herself staring at a horrible monstrosity. The body that was in the cracked drum had somehow reconstituted into a black, tarry, loathsome skeleton. It spoke in a voice like vomit, the true voice of the creature, undisguised by its former attempt to sound mortal. Brains, brains, it said in a lustful croak, shuffling towards Tina, raising its arms to clutch and embrace her. She turned and ran for the stairs, dashing up them, gasping and panting in horror. On the way, she kicked off her high-heeled shoes, which would only impede her effort to save her life. When she hit that third step, the one that's a bitch from the top, it came down on her with all of her weight. Sorry, uh, coming down on it with all of her weight, it gave way, splintering with a loud ripping noise. Tina's leg plunged right through as the step caved in, tearing her flesh and jamming her to her hip. The stinking black corpse started climbing towards her on all fours, muttering, Brains! Brains! She hung in her helpless situation with one leg poking, poking through the stair cavity, kicking and trying to find purchase. She clawed at the stairs and the walls, twisting to look at the monster coming after her. Brains! The thing croaked. Impelled by fear, since she couldn't extricate herself from her trap, Tina pulled her other leg through the splinters of the broken step and then lowered her body and let herself drop through the stairwell. She landed with a thud on concrete beneath the steps and lay there gasping and moaning, trying to pull herself upright. The rotting, chemically mummified corpse started dragging itself back down the steps. Tina struggled to crawl away from the hideous thing and finally staggered to her feet as the corpse reached for her croaking. Live brains! No! Tina screamed, limping deeper into the basement. I just have to stop here for one second because... The descriptors here are just this again. All right. I, I take it back. This is John Russo's best writing in uh, his description of the tar man is perfect. The a loathsome creature, you know, I love that it reconstituted from like goo 
uh, you just get such a image knowing what the Tarman looks like and knowing the way that Russo describes him. It's like the perfect fusion and it is terrifying. She dodged and hid among the piles of dusty, grimy debris. And just when she thought she was doomed, she spotted an old janitor's closet with the door ajar. She darted into it and pulled the door shut, hoping that the creature wouldn't know she was in there. To her great relief, the door was made of steel and could be locked by depressing and turning the knob from the inside. She did this just in time, a few seconds before her pursuer started tugging and twisting. Then she cowered in the darkness. The thing started pounding and pounding, trying to push the door in. Tina screamed, Freddy! Freddy! Desperately hoping that he had returned from the funeral home. She stood up and groped for something to defend herself with. Her hand struck a cord and she pulled it. The closet bulb came on. She looked frantically all around her and saw nothing but an old mop, a squeegee, a ringer bucket, and some cleaning supplies. The pounding on the door kept up rhythmically, repetitively. Bang. Pause. Bang. Pause. Bang. Pause. Sobbing with fear, Tina covered her ears with her hands. Then suddenly... The pounding stopped. Not knowing whether to be relieved or more scared, Tina pulled her hands away from her ears. She darted her eyes around, all around in another frantic survival scan. This time she noticed that the steel door had a peephole in it. Apparently it had once been used as the front door of an office till it had been appropriated for this basement closet. Timidly, Tina put her eye to the peephole She caught a glimpse of the blackened corpse shuffling among the piles of junk, shoving things inside, apparently on some kind of shoving things aside, apparently on some kind of search. With dread, she realized what it must be looking for, a tool, an implement, something that could be used to pry open the closet door and drag her out. Freddy, she screamed, Freddy, with heightened terror. Absolutely, absolutely terrifying. If I have one criticism of this passage, it is that, like, give the tar man some more dialogue besides brains, brains, brains. That's my only criticism. Because that first part, oh, my God. Freddie and Frank were listening as Bert finished telling Ernie Coltenbrenner the events that had led up to the request to use the crematorium. So now you know, said Bert. What's in these plastic bags is a, a split dog all cut up, a corpse that we dismembered with a friggin' bone saw because they would, wouldn't stay dead. Because they wouldn't stay dead like they were supposed to. Now will you let us cremate the damn things? Trying to digest all the fantastic details. Ernie stared at the squirming bags. Why me? He said mournfully. Why does it always have to be me who's dumb enough to stick around and try to operate a class funeral home in a dying neighborhood where I seldom get to deal with upper crust people, loyal people like Morton and Helen here? He looked at the cadavers and then back at the squirming bags. If I hadn't seen that dismembered hand grabbing my ankle, I never would have believed you, Bert. I'm still not sure I really saw it. Well, you did, said Bert. You saw it all right. So me and Frank and Freddie, 
So get your oven fired up, will you, Ernie? Yes, yes, I suppose there's no other choice. Follow me, Ernie said. Bring those bags with you. They went down the hallway into the crematorium. While Bert, Frank, and Freddie lugged the plastic bags full of animal and human body parts into the room, Ernie turned the knobs that ignited the gas jets with a loud thump. Then he opened the door of the oven and pulled out a long, sliding stainless steel rack. Pile all the bags on here, men, he instructed. Bert said, this will destroy everything, right? Nothing. I want we want nothing left over. Oh, everything will go. Ernie assured him, including the bones. Oh, the bones are no problem. The hardest part to burn is the heart. Freddie shuddered, lifting the bag containing the cadaver's trembling torso onto the oven rack. The heart is tough to burn? Why? asked Bert. The heart is tough to burn? Why? asked Bert. It's just a big, tough muscle, said Ernie. But we don't want any part surviving, Bert said. Don't worry. I'll turn it up hotter for the heart. And the split dog, that has to go too. All of it, all of its parts, even if it's half of a heart. All of it will go assured Ernie. So there won't be anything left then? Bert nitpicked. Nothing but a little itty-bitty pile of ashes. Well, we don't even want the ashes, Ernie. Then I'll turn it up higher and we'll burn the ashes too. When, Fred, when Frank said all loaded up and Ernie slid the stainless steel rack into the oven with its squirmy cargo, he slammed the door, which had a porthole in it so that the work of the flames could be viewed Frank and Freddie hung back, too sick to look, but Bert and Ernie watched, anxious to make sure that the crematorium handled its grisly chore. The gas jets curled up and around the flopping, struggling bags. The plastic quickly burned off, revealing the limbs and the body parts of the cadaver and the split dog. The human head and the half of dog's head were screaming from the heat, and the other body part sections were rolling and twitching like mad. The hair and fur started to singe, and the flesh of it, the flesh itself began to sizzle, curl, and blacken. Black smoke poured from the chimney of the crematorium. Uh-oh. The fat columns of black, oily smoke rose to the sky, reaching the dense, dark rain clouds that had been hovering all afternoon and evening. When the putrid smoke mixed with the clouds, there was a blinding explosion, a veritable hydra of electricity dancing all over the ominous sky. With this burst of malignant lightning, the rain that had held back all day began to come down. For some strange reason, it seemed to concentrate itself in the area of the Colton Burner Funeral Home and the Resurrection Cemetery. The rain saturated the graves, splattering the tombstones and monuments. The droplets pelted the blades of grass and soaked down into the earth. As the moisture pounded on the turf, it seemed to steam, making clinging bundles of vaporous mist, blackish yellow earth-hugging clouds, as malignant-looking as thick bundles of smoke pouring from the crematorium chimney. When this unusual rain collected in puddles, for instance, in the depressions of sunken ancient graves, it began to corrode the earth. It began to eat its way down, loosening and dissolving the packed soil 
and soaking into the coffins beneath. The chemical-laden water hissed as it sank through the ground and seeped through the coffins, seeking the long dead flesh that the coffins held. Every now and then, forks of lightning that normally might have struck tall trees or power lines actually came down low between the trees or other choice targets and smashed the earth, splitting it apart, making it easier for the ugly yellow rain to reach the buried coffins. When this rain started, Scuzz, Legs, Chuck, Casey, and Meat ran from the cemetery. Scuzz's ghetto blaster blaring and Legs was pulling her clothes on as the gas stumbled and darted among the tombstones. In a blinding downpour, they groped their way to the exit under the stone arch and piled into Suicide's convertible. Suicide tried to start the engine, but got nothing but a grinding sound and no turnover. Legs said, hey, my skin burns. Me too, said Scuzz. Turn that box off. It'll track fucking lightning, said Meat. Scuzz turned off the loud music. My skin stings, said Casey. It's that rain. It's like acid rain or something. I saw a puddle of it look that looked yellowish. Oh, shit, Legs bitched. It's all over me. A towel. Somebody give me a towel. Yeah, you think you're in a hotel? Suicide leered. Oh, crap. I wonder what's in that rain, said Legs. Suicide kept grinding the ignition till he could uh, till he couldn't get a peep out of the battery. Then he said, fuck it. This car ain't going nowhere. Hey, by the way, said Meat, where the hell's Tina? I ain't seen her since back in the cemetery. She must have split, cut out on us. That wench's head, that wench, that wench's head is screwed up, said Suicide. She went looking for Freddy, said Chuck, and she found him. How the hell do you know, Scuzz jeered, because I tailed her for a little, because I tailed her for a little way when she tried to sneak off on us. He was sneaking up behind her. Freddie was down by the funeral home, unloading a van with you need a medical supply on it. Tina went and met him, and he must have given her a key to the warehouse to go in and wait for him. So ridiculous. I mean, they just like inexplicably run for you need a in, in the movie. Um, my, my son and daughter are running around upstairs. You might hear them screaming, blowing off steam before bed. Tina went and met him and he must've given her a key to the warehouse to go in and wait for him. Cause I s saw her open the door and go in the Unita vans still parked down there by the funeral home. See it. Yeah. Yeah. Said suicide using his hand to wipe mist from the windscreen so he could peer through the battered rain hey do you guys hear something uh-oh casey piped up all of a sudden hear what said meat i don't know something like maybe the wind howling only stranger and weirder they all fell silent and listened as hard as they could it's coming from the cemetery meat yelled wind down the window suicide shit we'll get drenched again legs complained um, it was hard to hear anything distinctly above the noise of pelting rain, but they all thought that they heard distant muffled moaning. The sound seemed to come up from somewhere deep, like below the ground, soft, almost too muted to hear. 
there was something clawing and there were some clawing and scratching sounds and something that sounded like nails or boards being pried loose. That is scary as fuck. It, it, It was hard to hear anything distinctly above the noise of the pelting rain, but they all thought they heard distant muffled moaning. The sound seemed to come from somewhere deep, like below the ground, soft, almost too muted to hear. Then there were some clawing and scratching sounds and something that sounded like nails or boards being pried loose. The fucking corpses are coming out of the graves. Suicide joked, letting out a mad giggle. (laughs) But nobody else laughed. They were too worried that the strange sounds that they were hearing were indicative of exactly what suicide had put into words. Wind the windows up, Legs cried. That shit and rain stings. That shit and rain stings. I can't keep dry anyway, said Casey. There's a leak in the roof right above my head. I got to get out of here, said Chuck with with claustrophobic ferocity. Let's go over to the warehouse and see if Tina will let us in so we can wait out the storm. If she's there, she better let us in, said Suicide. All this is her freaking boyfriend's fault. If that queeb... Freddy never got such a dopey job. Fucking A, said Scuzz. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be here. Damn right, said Suicide. The whole gang piled out of the convertible and dashed across the street through the downpour, their shoes splashing in deep puddles of yellowish water as the tall boys take a walk played. Meanwhile, Tina's situation had gone from bad to worse. Locked in the basement closet, she had watched the rotting, corpse-like creature shuffling around in the shadows, hunting through the junk and the rubble. Sometimes she couldn't see him at all, and sometimes she could only see parts of him because he was outside the periphery of the peephole. For a while, she had dared to hope that she might remain safe. She couldn't imagine what he might find that would enable him to get at her. But then he came shuffling towards her and she caught a glimpse of something frightening in his hand, an old rusty crowbar. She screamed as his foul, stinking black shape loomed closer, blotting out her view through the peephole. She heard the crowbar being wedged between the door and the jab. And with a creaking, prying noise, the jab started to bend. In a matter of moments, the tongue of the lock was going to be popped loose. Thinking to herself how true it was that there were no agnostics in foxholes, Tina started to mumble an act of contrition. Oh, boy. While Tina was praying, Chuck, Casey, Meat, Scuzz, Legs, and Suicide came pounding up the front steps of the warehouse main entrance. Without bothering to ring the bell, Meat twisted the doorknob and was surprised when the door came open. Right. That was the whole thing about the lock. I mean, it's like... It's like Russo needs to explain. He has to explain all this stuff to us. That's what it is. Like he has to explain all these like little things. The movie doesn't worry about this stuff and it doesn't matter. The gang immediately rushed inside, brushing the rain off themselves. Legs said, my skin really burns. Ouch, ouch. Well, if you had taken a bath once in a while, Casey joked. Chuck shouted, hey, Tina, are you in here? Tina's voice came back in a reply, a distinct shout. Yes. Here, help me. I'm in the cellar. Oh, God. Because she sounded so desperate, the whole gang broke into a run 
towards the sound of her voice, towards the basement door. They were all yelling once as they ran. Is that Tina? Said Meat. What's she yelling about? Said Casey. Where the fuck is she? Meat wondered. Through the door, said Scuzz. Watch out. There's a broken step. Suicide pushed Scuzz out of the way and took the lead. He and everybody else charged down the basement stairs after stepping gingerly past the place where there was a splintered gap. They hit the bottom of the steps in time to see the blackened figure of the corpse prying open the door of the closet where Tina was cowering. As the door banged open, Suicide yelled, What the fuck? The rotting chemical mummy turned its head. I love that. The rotting chemical mummy turned its head and looked at Suicide. He and his friends stared, not sure what they were seeing. Some kind of dirty, filthy, horrible, rotten. Tina took advantage of the moment while they were all frozen to run for her life out of the closet. When the mummy turned to grab her, she was gone, darting and banging into junk boxes and barrels. As a second choice, the mummy came after suicide, croaking his favorite word, brains. Suicide was so terrified, his legs went wobbly, and he slipped in a greasy puddle while the rest of the gang... (laughs) While the rest of the gang backed away. When he scrambled and slid on the slippery concrete floor, the stinking corpse grabbed him by his ears, yanked his head up, and bit into the top of his stubbly shaved head like eating a melon without slicing it first or an egg into the shell. Crack! The chemical mummy had powerful jaws, even though it seemed to be half rotten and dead. Suicide screamed horribly, but briefly, as his whole body twitched, his arms and legs jerking spastically in a death reflex due to having a piece bitten out of his brain. Chuck, Casey, Meat, Scuzz, and Legs stared in mind-popping horror at what was taking place in front of them. Tina screamed and circled behind them, running past them and up the stairs. They were left looking on stupidly at the, at the monster as the monster took another bite out of Suicide's skull. Chomp. Shit, said Meat. He picked up a block of dirty wood and hurled it at the corpse hitting its shoulder and succeeding in drawing its attention. It looked up at meat and the rest of his pals. More brains, the monster croaked, sounding stronger than before. It had made a meal of suicide. Meat and the gang bolted for the stairs. They leapt up and stumbled en masse, scrambling across and over the gapped out step. The last one out of the basement, Meat turned and slammed the door shut. Help me, he screamed. Bar this door. Don't run away, you fuckers. While Tina was fighting for her life and Suicide's brains were being devoured, Freddy was feeling sicker than ever in his stomach and his head. He watched Ernie Coltenburner open the door to the crematorium over and jab around inside with a poker while Bert Wilson peered anxiously over his shoulder. Is the heart gone? Bert asked. Yep, all burnt up, said Ernie, leaning his poker against the wall, against the oven and slamming the door. Are you sure, Bert pressed? It's all gone, right up the chimney. Thank God it's over, said Bert, visibly relaxing. I never heard such a weight 
I never had such a weight lifted from my shoulders. Thanks to you, Ernie. Don't forget now, you're invited to my barbecue tomorrow. Think you can make it? <laughs> it depends, Bert. I'll try, but I might be too pooped. I still have to get Mr. and Mrs. Dowden looking pretty for their debut on Thursday morning. Well, I'm not going to forget I owe you a big one, uh, said Bert. Then he looked over at Frank and Freddie. They were sitting side by side, slumped on a little bench on the far side of the crematorium, both looking extremely ill. Hey, what's wrong with you two guys? Bert blurted. Cheer up. The worst is over with. I feel like shit, said Freddie. I'm really sick. Me too, said Frank. I feel sick too. Bert squatted in front of Freddie and Frank. Sick how? Freddie said, I've got a headache that would kill a horse, and I just want to puke. I'm so weak, and I can hardly move. Yeah, me too, said Frank, but I'm cold on top of it. I got a terrible chill. He shivered violently, hugging his arms tight to his body. It's that stuff. We breathe that stuff. What stuff, said Bert. What are they talking about, said Ernie, coming over to have a look at the two greenish-looking men on the crematorium bench. When the drum cracked, said Freddie, this gas squirted out. It hit us right in the face, and I know we breathed it. It knocked us out. We were out cold for a while. Christ, said Bert. We told you about it before, said Frank. This ain't the first time you're hearing about it. I know, I know, said Bert, pacing nervously once again. I didn't think the effects were still on you. We're still on you, that's all. Bert and Ernie both found themselves edging uneasily back a few steps away from Frank and Freddie. Man, we better get to a doctor, Freddie moaned. Yeah, I guess so, Frank agreed, holding his stomach. Bert says, you guys can use the company van. Drive to an emergency room. Suddenly, Frank stumbled to his feet and ran down the hall to the embalming room. He rushed through it, flinging open the door. He stuck his head out into the rain and vomited. Thunder and lightning and wind raging all around him. No sooner did he come back in than Freddy stumbled out and vomited too. Bert and Ernie hung back, watching fretfully. Frank wiped his mouth on the sleeve of his gray, you need a work shirt. Gotta call my wife, he mumbled. Gotta tell her I'm going to the hospital. Me too, said Freddy. Gotta let Tina know where I'm at. Maybe you guys can tell her. If they, if they had cell phones, they could just text. They could just text their loved ones. Ernie spoke, spoke up firmly. Listen, you two guys can't go running around in this storm. You're too sick. You're in no condition to drive. I'll call an ambulance. Get paramedics, said Frank. Why don't you two guys sit down over there? Bert suggested, pointing to a couple of folding chairs against a far wall parallel to the embalming tables, which still held the nude corpses of Morton and Helen Dowden. This would put the corpses between Bert and his two sick employees, who repulsed him more than the corpses did, since he didn't understand the disease they had and feared it might be contagious. Ernie grabbed a wall phone and dialed. Can I have the number of the city paramedics fire department? What's the number? He wrote on a scratch, a scratch pad. He wrote on a scratch pad, then hung up and dialed. Uh, hello. Yes. Can we get some paramedics over here? He listened and they gave and then gave the address of the funeral home. Tell the paramedics to come around to the side door to the embalming room. We've got two men poisoned here. We don't know what kind of poison. No, it wasn't embalming fluid. It didn't happen here. Tell the paramedics to hurry. Okay. He hung up. They're on their way. At, they're on their way, asked Bert. Yep, suppose, they're supposed to be, said Ernie. 
Frank and Freddie were both doubled up, side by side on folding chairs, holding their heads and moaning. And that brings us to the end of chapter 11. That was a long, that was our longest reading yet. We're at page 93. It's not a long book. We're about, we're over halfway through because there's only, the book is only 170 pages. So we're, we're more than halfway through. You could, you could see it right there. We're more than halfway through. And um, yeah, that is the, that is the most terrifying part of the, of the entire, the most terrifying, you know, part of the book for me really is that part. I mean, there's more scary stuff later, but you know, just dealing with that tar man and just seeing like how gross he is, the, the language that Russo uses to describe him, it's it's scary stuff. And, you know, John Russo, he does. He gets like uh, tripped up on like small details, like leaving doors unlocked. We don't care. We need to read like a half a paragraph by, of that. Give us more tar man. You know what I mean? And of course, they don't call him the tar man in this in this version. But um, his description, chemical mummy, uh, just oh, my God. Uh, loathsome creature, um, the, the talking, the, the the luring down in the basement, the darkness. I could just see the darkness of this dark, deep, dark basement combined with what we've seen of the actual Unita basement in the movie. It's terrifying. So I uh, hope you enjoy that. I Like I said, my the, you can hear a mouse fart in the basement all the way up from the attic in this house. The, the walls are very thin. I don't know if you heard my two small children running around with their mother um, uh, frustrated and angry that they're running around uh, after bath time when they're supposed to be in bed. But that is definitely what I heard upstairs. And like I said, I don't know what the quality of the recording is. And I don't really care to, to you know, uh, pretend like I didn't hear it. That is what I heard. And that's probably what you all heard, too. Whatever. I don't really care. Um, well, I care enough to tell you is my point in case you hear the muffled screams of small children. Um, in any case, if you're a parent, you know, you know, you know, the deal, you know, the deal if you're a parent, um, we'll see you next week with, uh, two more chapters. And I mean, we're, we're, we're closing in on the end of this book. I, I I'm having a lot of fun reading it. Um, I'm sorry that I retake sentences and stumble over my words, but I think we've done a pretty good job thus far. Um, okay. We'll see you next time. Peace and hair grease.